Our sermon text this morning is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Paul writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, uh, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, we've already said uh, earlier in the service that today is Reformation Sunday. That's usually observed the Sunday closest to or the Sunday before October 31st. And as you may already know, it was... 502 years ago, Martin Luther, this uh, Augustinian monk, nailed his 95 theses to the door of that castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Now, most uh, people, they kind of view that as the official start of the Protestant Reformation. It's not the very first thing that happened. There were people before Martin Luther that kind of paved the way for him in some ways. But we most, most of us kind of mark October 31st as the date that marks the beginning of the Reformation. Now, if you don't know what those things were, what what were the ninety five theses? We don't even, we don't really talk like that much anymore. But what they were, they were ninety five points of debate or dispute over the Roman Catholic doctrine and practice of the sale of indulgences. Now, this reprehensible practice was used by the Roman Catholic Church back then as a means to raise money for a lot of things, among other things, uh, the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. You can imagine how much money that took, and they had to find a way to pay for it. And so you could say that the Protestant Reformation was started over a a building program gone awry in some ways. In some ways, it's always about the money, and that's also true in some ways with uh, this event with Martin Luther and the Roman Catholic Church. Now, what what were indulgences? That's something we don't really talk about. We don't have those things today but they were basically a way to pay they were they were they were marketed if i can use that kind of a crass language they were put forward as a way as a means uh for the people in the church to kind of pay for the remission of temporal punishments for sin for the living and sometimes even for the early release from purgatory for the deceased loved ones of the people in the church now you can imagine uh the kind of how effective that would have been as bad as it was, how effective that would have been for the church in raising a, a great deal of money. Now, if you promise someone, you know, if you put so much money in the coffers of the church, uh, by the, you know, the church by means of the, the merits of the saints and whatnot, uh, will get your, your, your deceased loved one out of purgatory early. Think about your poor suffering grandmother. Think about, imagine the kind of things that they would have said to get them to put their money in. And they didn't know any better because they weren't being taught God's word. They were being deceived and led astray. And so what did they do? They, they would put the money in. And of course that, that basilica was, was built. Now those 95 theses, if you've ever read them, if you haven't read them, I recommend that to you. You can probably find them online these days rather easily. But you might know that they don't mention justification at all. 95, we have trouble with three points in a sermon, 95 points of dispute about indulgences. I mean, that's about as thorough as I can imagine. Part of me is like, why don't you just round up to 100 and think of five more? But but uh, think about that. He doesn't really mention the doctrine of justification by faith at all, but it, make no mistake, it was Martin Luther's understanding of the Bible's teachings on justification that was behind his opposition to those indulgences. 
He knew that man was made right with God only by faith in Jesus Christ alone, not anything else. And so in a sense, these indulgences were, were an intrusion on that. You know, you got to think that the people that were hearing this stuff being offered, these, these uh, indulgences being sold, that they probably had the impression they were buying forgiveness. If you could buy forgiveness, how much money would you give? How much is peace of, of soul and mind worth to anyone? with half of a mind and half of a conscience. So people, you imagine, gave a lot of money that they shouldn't have given and were given a false hope, and Martin Luther was aghast about that, and he he was offended by it, and he stood against it when given the opportunity. Now, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, if you know anything about the Reformation, you know that that's the doctrine that was at the forefront. That was not the only thing that was talked about, but it was the main thing that was debated and discussed and in, in the Reformation, in fact, sola fide, if you know some of these phrases, why we use Latin, I don't know, but that, you know, it makes you sound more intelligent, right? Uh, sola fide means faith alone, and that that is one of the so-called five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Those include things like scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and glory to God alone. Those are kind of the hallmarks of the Reformation. If you want to know what does it mean to be Reformed, what is the Reformation about? Those five things, uh, a grasp of those five things would go a long way to helping you understand what it means to be a part of the Reformed, the Protestant Church. Now, the doctrine of justification by faith alone has been called, among other things, the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. Martin Luther himself said that. John Calvin called it the hinge on which the Christian religion turns. The hinge on which the Christian religion turns. The shorter catechism, our catechism, gives, I think, about as clear and helpful a definition of justification as you will find. And it says this, shorter catechism question 33. What is justification? Answer, justification is an act of God's free grace. We don't, he doesn't owe it to us, we don't earn it. It's an act of God's free grace wherein he does two things. He pardons all our sins. He forgives all your sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received how? By faith alone. That's about as good a definition as you can get of that uh, biblical teaching of the gospel. And so I hope when you when you hear that, I hope you can see why it's such an important thing, and so why this doctrine is so important and always has been. It's really at the heart of the gospel, isn't it? Justification by faith alone in Christ alone is really at the heart of the gospel. And so if you get justification wrong, you're really getting the gospel wrong. And the church really does stand or fall with the gospel. Now this morning we're going to be looking at at the one issue, as important as justification is this morning from our text, we're going to look at what I think is the one issue that was even more foundational to the Reformation than justification. I feel like I just made a poem, a rhyme. The doctrine of justification was the main subject debated and defended by the reformers, sometimes called the, the material cause of the Reformation, the, the thing, the matter at hand, the thing they talked about the most. But it was really the authority of Scripture that was behind all of that. Really the most important thing in the Reformation, in some regard, was the authority of Scripture as God's Word. Sometimes it's referred to as the formal cause of the Reformation, the, the foundational cause of the Reformation. So we want to look at this morning the doctrine, uh, to use the Latin, of sola scriptura or scripture alone from our text, because it was only the doctrine of scripture alone 
that it's only because of that that there was a, a debate at all. Martin Luther wouldn't have even had a, a reason to pin those 95 theses on, on the door of that church in Wittenberg if it weren't for that. Now, why, why does that make it such an issue? The Roman Catholic Church, what is their view on, on authority? Do they believe that the scriptures are authoritative? Yes, they do, sort of. What else do they say has authority? The, they call it the tradition of the church, the formal teaching of the church about scripture. They put it on par with scripture, and what they really do is they put it above scripture, because how do you know what scripture says? The church tells you. The church's tradition, her authoritative teaching on what the Bible says, is what the Bible says, according to them. And so you can see why the reformers took issue with this. They said, no, the scripture, the Bible alone is our authority for faith and practice. And so men such as Martin Luther and others, what did they do? They examined the scriptures themselves, and they found that the teaching of the word of God was contrary to that which was being taught by the Roman Catholic Church and their tradition. And so when you hear the Reformation, what was the reform that they were trying to do? They were trying to call the church back and reform the church by calling her first and foremost back to the authority of the scriptures alone as the rule and authority for faith and practice. So that's when you hear sola scriptura, that's what it's really about. That's what that's what it means to be for scripture alone. It means that the Bible alone, because it is the word of God, is the ultimate authoritative rule or standard for faith, that is what you believe, and practice how you live. So we're going to look this morning at what the Apostle Paul has to say about these very things in our text. And what he says here in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, I think, says at least three important things about the Scriptures as the Word of God. First, we're going to see what this passage tells us about the inspiration of Scripture. The inspiration of Scripture. The second thing he's going to tell us about is is, is about the authority of Scripture. So the inspiration of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, and last but not least, we want to see what Paul has to say in this text to us about the uses and the sufficiency of Scripture. So inspiration, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture. So the first thing we want to notice in our text is here that Paul talks about the inspiration of Scripture. That, that really gets at the very nature itself of, of Scripture itself. When you say to yourself, what is the Bible? That's what this is getting at. That's what inspiration really is, is about. And what does Paul say in verse 16? All Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. What does that mean? It's a weird, it's kind of a strange phrase, even to our uh, modern ears. What does it mean to say that the Bible or the Scripture is breathed out by God, or if you have the NIV, it's God-breathed? Other translations say given by inspiration of God or something like that. When you say that, what you're saying is that God himself spoke it. To say that the Bible is inspired by God or God-breathed is to say that what the Scripture says, God says. You can't really sum it up any more plain than that. The word inspiration has that same idea. Inspire means to breathe or to breathe in or to breathe out. So it's, you know, what do you do when you talk? Most normal people, when you talk, you're, you're exhaling. If you want to talk when you inhale, that'd be kind of strange. But, you know, when you, when you exhale, it's what, when you talk, you exhale. That's, that's the picture being painted here, that in the scriptures, you have the voice and the breath of God. God is the one doing the speaking in the scriptures. He used the human authors and their vocabularies and all that, but it's God's word, the way he wants it, the way he wanted it. Said, notice also that Paul uses the word, one little word there, 
all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and breathed out by God. All, all of it. And what does that mean? If, if all of scripture is breathed out by God and in his, in his, his word, it means that we're not free to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we like. We're not free to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we agree with. We're not free to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that we're comfortable with. I dare say there's a lot of parts of Scripture that some people would be very uncomfortable with, but we don't have the option to pick and choose. We don't have, we don't have the option to edit it. You know, if we did all that, the Bible would be a rather short book. And think about this, if you, when you pick and choose, when, you, when you're tempted to pick and choose the parts of the Bible that you like or that you're comfortable with or that you agree with, what's the real standard? Is it Scripture or you? It's you. When you're putting yourself, when you think that way, you're putting yourself as an authority higher than God's Word. I'm going to pick and choose the parts I agree with or the parts that I'm comfortable with. You're making yourself a higher authority than God's Word, and so we must not do that. Now, what... What was Jesus' view of Scripture? In Matthew 5, verses 17 to 18, the Lord Jesus himself goes so far as to say this. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's a, that's a shorthand way of referring to the Old Testament. The law and the prophets is, is, a, is a way of saying the Old Testament. Uh, he says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He had a pretty strong view of the inspiration of, of the scriptures. He's saying, he's, he's using Hebrew words here, that not the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, that's a jot or an iota, it looks like a comma. That's what it, that's, it's, it's, we use it, our, our letter would be Y, the, the letter Y. He's saying, not the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, nor the smallest mark of the pen, like a period, like a dot. Not, not even that will pass away from God's word until all of it is fulfilled. Even the, so to speak, the, the dotting of the I's and the crossing of the T's, it's another, that's how we would say it these days. All of it is going to be fulfilled down to the very letter. That's how strong of a, of a view Jesus himself had of the scriptures. Jesus clearly held to the inspiration and authority of the scriptures as God's word. Not only would it not pass away, it would all be fulfilled down to the letter, down to the smallest mark of the pen. And so this morning I ask, what about you? What is your view of the Bible? Do you believe the Bible is the very word of God? Yes. And if that's the case, it has to change how you read it. That has to affect how you read the Bible. It has to change the way you listen to it when, when it's read or when it's taught or when it's preached. When you hear the preaching of the Word of God, the faithful preaching of the Word of God, we have to, veer it, to revere it and listen to it as the Word of God. Do you revere the Scriptures as God's Word? Do you receive the preaching of the Bible as the preaching of the very Word of God? That's, that's what has to happen, among other things. We have to, to listen to this as the Word of God. And that brings us to the second thing we see in our text that follows pretty closely from the first thing. You know, it's because all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God himself and is the very word of God, because of that it is also authoritative by definition. If it's God's word, it is inherently authoritative, to say the least. That can't really help but be the case. 
If God himself speaks in the pages of the Bible, then whatever he says in Scripture is not open to debate. In other words, we don't sit over the Scripture as an authority over it, in judgment over it. Rather, we must sit under the Scripture, so to speak. The Bible has the last say and really has the first say as well. The Bible, the Scriptures, must be the standard for all that we believe and all that we do as Christians. Scripture alone ultimately must settle our doctrinal and ethical disputes and debates. This is uh, summed up well for us again. This is Westminster Day, right? Uh, Westminster Larger Catechism, question three. It says this, what is the word of God? Pretty short answer. Answer, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, and it says the only rule of faith and obedience. The only rule of faith and obedience. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are the word of God, and it's because they are the word of God that they are the only rule or authority of faith. And obedience. If they're the only rule of faith, what does that mean? It means that the Bible is what determines what we are to believe. The Bible alone must determine what you believe about God. The Bible alone should determine what you believe about yourself as his creature. The Bible alone should determine what you believe about the way of salvation through faith in Christ. Many people in our day, maybe many professing Christians in our day, reject that. They think of God the way they want to think of God. They think of themselves, not the way the Scripture teaches, but the way they decide to think of themselves. And not only that, but a lot of people try to think of the way of salvation as whatever the way they think it is, not the way the Scripture plainly teaches. That should not be the case. The Bible is the only rule of obedience or practice. What does that mean? The Bible teaches us what duty God requires of us as his people. In other words, the Bible tells us how we should live. How do we know what is right and wrong? Many people don't even believe in right and wrong in our day. They don't believe in objective truth. They say they don't. They really do. Many people don't believe in right and wrong, but how do you know what is right and what is wrong? The Scriptures. How do you know how God would have us to live? The Scriptures alone. How do you know the way of salvation through faith in Christ? The Scriptures alone. How do we know what it looks like to live a life of holiness unto the Lord out of gratitude for his great salvation in Christ? The scriptures. The scriptures teach us all these things. It's why God gave them to us, why God gave us his word to begin with. Now we see a, a pretty good example of this, of this idea of a believer submitting or a group of believers submitting to the word of God and letting it make all the determining factors for what they believe And we find a good example of this in Acts chapter 17 with the Bereans. Remember the Bereans and Paul's missionary journeys? It says in Acts 17, verses 11 and 12, Luke writes the following. He says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, the Jews in Berea. Why? They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. So what happened? What, what's going on there? Paul comes to Berea. He, he was on his, on his journeys. He gets to Berea, and he's preaching the word of God to them. He's preaching the gospel to them. And where is he preaching it to them from? The Old Testament. It's the scriptures they had at the time. And he's preaching the gospel, and what did they do? They did two things. They received it eagerly. They knew he was preaching from the scriptures. And so they were eagerly awaiting and listening to what he said. 
And what's the second thing they did? They examined or searched the scriptures daily to see if the things that Paul said were true. They measured even the apostles Paul's preaching by the scriptures. They received the word with all eagerness. They were eager to hear Paul preach the gospel. They knew that if if Paul was preaching from the Old Testament scriptures, that the scriptures were the word of God and they accepted it that way. And so I ask this morning, like the Bereans, are you eager to hear the preaching of the Word of God? Do you look forward to hearing the Word of God read and preached? Do you receive the preaching of the Word of God the way that they did? Because they're called noble-minded because of that exact thing. I hope that you do. And really, that, that eagerness should have very little to do with the preacher himself. It should have very little to do with the person preaching. The Word of God should be the focus not the person preaching it. Now, what else did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see if the things were so. What does that mean? Think about this. Remember, they're called noble or noble-minded. The Bereans didn't take Paul's word for anything. That, That should be kind of shocking to us, I think. They didn't take Paul's word for anything. They didn't reject Paul and his word out of hand either. But they didn't just say, oh, it's Paul. Of course, Paul's right. We like Paul. Paul's a nice guy. So whatever he says must be, must be okay. What did they do? They made it their daily practice to check everything that Paul said by the scriptures. I hope that's what you do here every Sunday. Receive the preaching of the word of God with eagerness and take my word for nothing. Don't take anyone's word for anything that stands in this pulpit. Don't just reject what we say, but don't take anything we say, uh, for anything. Follow along during the sermon as the Bible is being preached. It's one of the reasons, it's, it's a strange thing to say maybe, but it's one of the reasons I preach the way I do. I try to walk you through the text. Why? So you can follow along and see if what I'm saying is what the text is saying. Because if, if we're preaching and we're saying something the Bible is not saying, it's not a sermon at all. And it's not worth your time or attention. So follow along during the sermon, and then what, what do you do? Go back afterward and check those same scriptures after the sermon to see if what the preacher said is true to the Word of God. And if it is, rejoice in it, accept it, and follow through and bear the fruits of it in your life. And what was the result of all that in Berea? What does it say? Many came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Funny how that works. You accept God's Word, you check it, Check the preaching of it, and many came to believe in Christ. So that brings us to the third and final thing that Paul has to say about the Scriptures here in our text. First, he tells us about the inspiration of the Scriptures and the authority of all of Scripture as the Word of God. And then he tells us about the sufficiency and the usefulness of Scripture as well. Now, the first thing in our text uh, that he tells us about as far as its usefulness, and we just saw the fruit of the same thing in the case of the Bereans, is found in verses 14 and 15. Look there where Paul writes, he says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. The scriptures. You have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are what? Able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the first thing. That has to be the first thing. The first use of Scripture is to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the primary purpose 
first and foremost, that the Bible was given to us, that we might be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, uh, in the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures diligently. Like, they... Did the, did the Pharisees know the Old Testament? They did. He says, you search the scriptures diligently because you think that by them you have eternal life. In other words, they thought as long as they're in the Bible, the Old Testament to them, as long as they're spending their time working on it and studying it, that they, that somehow made them right with God. But he says, but you refuse to come to me that you might have life. You can study the Bible till you're blue in the face. And if you never come to faith in Jesus Christ... All you're doing is heaping coals on your head. It's, it's not, the Bible's not written to just, for you to justify yourself. The Bible is written so that you might see your sin, see the judgment that you deserve at the hands of a holy God, and look to Christ as your mediator and live by faith in Him. That must be the first thing that the scriptures make us wise for salvation. You know, the Bible is not just a bunch of helpful tips on how to live a good life. I have seen and heard many a sermon series that make it look like that's what it's for. Now, does the Bible tell you a lot of things? Is there a lot of things in the Bible that help you to have a better life? Yes. Is the Bible just helpful tips on how to live a good life, how to have a better business, how to have a better marriage? It has a lot to say about marriage. It has a lot to say about business and work, but it's about making men and women right with God through faith in Christ. John 3.16, you could say the verse everybody, most of us know almost by heart maybe. John 3.16 is, is a good summary of that primary message of Scripture. And what does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should what? Should not perish but have everlasting life. Amen. And what does that mean? Outside of Christ, if you are not in Christ by faith, outside of Christ you will what? Perish everlastingly. But if you trust in Christ what are, you, what are you given as a gift? Eternal life. That is the message of Scripture from front to back. Now, think about this again. What Scriptures was Paul talking about there in verse 15? When he told Timothy, you've known from childhood the Scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. What was Timothy's Bible at the time? The Old Testament. And he tells Timothy, you've known the Scriptures since you were, since you were little. And they've been able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Christ and the gospel is in the Old Testament. Never, never let it be said to you that the gospel of Christ is not found throughout the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Now, what else does Paul tell us about the sufficiency and usefulness of the word of God in our text? Look again at verses 16 to 17 there in our passage. Paul writes there, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God and profitable, useful for teaching for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. How is the Bible useful to us as believers? The first thing is, it's useful for teaching. Another word for that is doctrine. Sometimes people like to say doctrine divides. Well, Paul says, no, the Bible is useful for doctrine, to teach us what to believe. The scriptures uh, here in the Bible, we are infallibly and authoritatively taught what we are to believe. What does this mean? It means, among other things, in, in preaching, if it's biblical preaching, we should expect to hear a good bit of doctrine. Biblical, true doctrine. 
in our preaching and teaching if we're being true to the Bible. The second thing that Paul says, the Bible is profitable, all of Scripture is profitable for reproof. Verse 16. In, in some ways, this is kind of the other side of the coin from doctrine. Sometimes we hold false beliefs. Sometimes we don't understand things the way that we should. And so we need our understanding of doctrine to be refuted and corrected. It's kind of the flip side of the coin of doctrine. There's a, there's a, a saying, uh, you know, don't believe everything you see. Well, don't believe everything you think. We don't naturally think everything the right way. We don't actually, you know, naturally on our own understand or view everything the right way. And what this means is we all need to learn and be taught. At times, the things that we believe and think need to be refuted or corrected. We shouldn't be surprised if you're listening to sermons from the Bible week after week. If once in a while you hear something and I didn't think it was that way, well, sometimes the way that we think needs to be renewed and corrected and refuted. We all need our views on things to be sharpened and even refuted sometimes. Thirdly, the Bible is profitable. All of Scripture is profitable for correction. You know, just as our thinking and understanding of doctrine sometimes has to be refuted, so also in a similar way, sometimes our sins and shortcomings need to be corrected. And what does that mean? It means, you know, when you're hearing the Bible being preached, if, if you're sitting under the preaching of the Word of God for any length of time, and you never hear something ever that makes you go, ouch, that you might even find somewhat offensive, there's probably something wrong. Unless you've reached and attained the resurrection already and we just don't know about it. None of us have reached that, right? Well, then, so sometimes we need to hear things that we maybe don't want to hear. We need to have our thinking as well as our living corrected sometimes. There's not much more you could say about the Reformation than that. Even the idea that we need a Reformation should tell you that. Both our thinking and our living needs to be reformed. And corrected. And the last thing it says, the scriptures, all of them are profitable for what? For training in righteousness. Verse 16, that word has the idea of raising up a child through discipline. The same word there is used and translated as discipline in, in Hebrews chapter 12. You know, the idea of discipleship and growth in grace is in view here. And again, I think this is the other side of the coin from correction. There's a negative side. There's also a positive side of being trained up in the way that we should go. And what's, what's the result of all these four uses that Paul gives us here in verse 16? What's the, what's the goal of that? What's the result of that? What does he say in verse 17? He says, all of this is so, quote, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So if you want to be ready to live for Jesus Christ, if you want to be equipped to follow him and to follow his will for your life, if you want to be ready to be fully equipped for whatever God would have you do, you need the ministry of the Word of God. You need all of the Scriptures. Now, that's why Paul said in, in Acts 20, he told the Ephesian elders, he said, I am, he was innocent of the blood of all men. And why was that? Because he didn't shrink back. He didn't, he didn't hold back or shrink back from declaring to the church and to the elders there the whole counsel of God. That's, that's, that's easier said than done. There are things in the scriptures that people don't like. And Paul, what did he say? He didn't shrink back from saying all of it. Whatever's in the Bible is there for a reason. It's all breathed out by God, and it's all, all of it, needful and useful for us as believers. 
We need all of the Word of God ministered to us to be fully equipped for whatever God wants us to do. If you want to be ready for every good work, we should be zealous, the Bible says, for good works. Those of us who have been saved by faith in Jesus Christ, by God's grace. Well, how do you, how are we ever going to be equipped for those good works? By the ministry of the Word of God. By the work of the Holy Spirit within you, the Word of God, what does it do? It has a renewing effect on your mind, on your thinking. Romans 12.1. The Bible, the Spirit uses the Word of God to change your thinking, to renew your mind. And because it renews your mind, it also has a transformative effect on your life. The Bible, all of it, is life-changing. No wonder Paul tells Timothy, if you were look, look at your Bible there in, in the very next chapter, two verses down the page, in, in chapter 4, verse 2, what does he tell Timothy to do? In fact, he charges him. This is, this is really his argument. He's saying, because the Bible is breathed out by God, all of it, because it's authoritative, because it's useful for all these things, he says, he charges him, verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom. This is serious. This is a serious charge. This isn't just Paul saying, Timothy, I think this would be a good idea. You know, try to do kind of what I do. He, I charge you at the judgment of Christ, that Christ is going to come and judge. He says, verse 2, preach the word. That's the takeaway for Timothy. That's the takeaway for every pastor and preacher. Because the Bible is the word of God and it is useful for all those things and it is authoritative above all things, we need to preach and teach the word of God. No wonder the Protestant reformers held to and taught the people to hold that the scriptures alone are the rule or standard for our faith and practice. And so we still hold to those things today and may God ingrain these things in our hearts and teach us these things as well. Let's Let's pray.